2: To create a listener account and in that listener account you can save episodes for later listening so you can create a kind of listening list we think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them please visit the site today
0: welcome to the new books network hello everybody i'm morris arduin co-host a co-host for the podcast queer voices which is found under the lgbtq studies on the new books network in this episode of Queer Voices, I talked to Dr. Chris Belcher about her new book, Pretty Baby, a Memoir, released in July by Simon & Schuster. Here's a little bit about Dr. Belcher. Chris Belcher is a writer, professor, and former sex worker. She completed a PhD in English at the University of Southern California, where she is now Assistant Professor of Writing and Gender Studies. Under her working name, Natalie West, she edited the acclaimed anthology, We Too, Essays on Sex Work and Survival. She was born and raised in West Virginia, and now lives in Los Angeles. And welcome to the podcast, Dr. Belcher.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here.
0: Well, we're th- thrilled to have you. The book is a very exciting read. I want the readers to know it's it's um, so much going on. We're going to do our best to get as much of it talk about as much about what's going on in that book as possible in this uh short podcast um let me tell the listeners a little bit about the book from the blurb from the jacket of the book i like to do that because it helps uh c- contextualize what we're going to talk about the dominatrix is the id of the american f- of american femininity she says the words that we all wish we could uh, when we find ourselves frozen in the presence of men no is principle among them so writes chris belcher who appeared. who destined for life of a life conventional, of conventional femininity after she took first place in an infant beauty contest, a minor glory that can follow you around a working class town of 1,600 people in rural West Virginia. But when she came out as queer, the conservative community that had once celebrated its prettiest baby turned on her a decade later living in los angeles and trying to stay afloat in the early years of a phd program Belcher plunges into the work of a pro dom branding herself as la's renowned lesbian dominatrix she specializes in male sex and male climates who want a dom to make them feel worthless shameful and weak all of the abuse regularly heaped upon women for free a queer woman whom men can trust with the unorthodox sides of their sexualities, Belcher is paid to be the keeper of the fantasies that they can't enact in their everyday relationships. But moonlighting as a sex worker also carries risks, like the not-so-submissive who tries to turn the tables and the jealous client out for revenge. As Belcher moves between the embodied world of the pro-dom and the abstract realm of academia, she discovers how lessons from the classroom apply to the dungeon and vice versa. Still, fear that her doctoral program won't approve the burdens her with a double life. Pretty Baby is her second coming out. Um, Why did you write this book?
3: I wrote this book um, primarily to push myself out of the closet in some ways. Um, As as readers or listeners would know, even just from that um, jacket copy description that you gave, I was working as an academic. I, you know, had just finished my PhD program. I was toiling on the academic job market for a few years and adjuncting, and all through that time, um, I was still mostly in the closet as a sex worker. Um, A lot of my close friends knew, even some people in my family knew. But when it came to the professional realm, I really felt that if if folks found out that I had done sex work or um, that I was currently doing sex work, then I would never get that job, that professorship that I wanted so badly. Um, and I, I did a lot to to hide it. And I worried a lot about it. Um, but there came to be a point when I, I started to feel like, okay, I'm adjuncting. I'm not making even enough money to pay my rent without doing sex work. Like, Why am I hiding parts of myself. Why am I not writing the work that I want to write, um, for this particular job? Because I was very interested in, in writing about sex work. And I had learned a lot, um, about gender and power and sexuality from the dungeon. And those were the things that I was, you know, applying for jobs and saying that I was an expert in. And so why was I not writing this book, um, just to keep my job as an adjunct. Um, and so, I just decided that I was going to instead of, you know, quietly coming out, I was going to fully embrace it and write this book and and write the book that I wanted to write. Um, And I do think that it paid off. I do think that I'm, you know, not only a more like able to live a more honest life, but also able to, um, you know, do my job better by, by talking about what I've learned.
0: Yeah, thank you. Uh, that, it seems that now that the uh, university would be very, very pleased with you. They have a real expert teaching. Uh, this, this is not something that uh, a lot of people know about. Um, so y- y- you've lived it and now you're teaching as well as writing. Um, I think they should ver- be very, very happy with you. Is that the case or the, as they learn?
3: Um, I, I mean, I think so. I, you know, I'm, I'm currently appoint, jointly appointed in a writing program and, um, in a gender and sexuality studies program at USC. Um, you know, but I don't, I don't think that, um, the stigma really goes away, even though I've thus far had professional support and I feel, um, I do feel supported in, in my programs. I think that, you know, even in queer theory, which is what I was studying when I was in graduate school, and what some some of what I teach now, I think there is a bit of a disconnect between the scholar and the subject, especially when the subject matter is sexuality. Um, can be, you know, things like BDSM play, or could be like um, exhibitionism or um, other forms of Um, you know, sexual, like, quote, unquote, perversion. I think that, you know, the scholar that studies these things is kind of at a remove, maybe it's an artist who's engaging in, um, in the in this kind of practice, or maybe it's um, a community that the scholar came from, but is no longer a part of, I think that there is this kind of disconnect that what happens in academia, can it sometimes be, um, you know, keep sexuality at arm's length. And and for some, from for some reasons, that's a good thing. Um, you know, sexuality can only be a part of our classrooms in certain ways. But um, I do think it's still a, a bit of a challenge to say, you know, I'm a sex worker, I've done sex work, and I'm also a college professor. Um, I don't I don't even think all of that has to do with sexuality. I think some of it's about class shame, because um, so many folks within academia, um, you know, are not familiar with being working class or working poor or, um, you know, having to make ends meet. And then there are others like me who are first generation, um, who really struggled through PhD program and struggled with, uh, you know, adjunct labor and all of that. So I don't know. I think I, I do feel supported, but I guess it's it's still complicated.
0: Well, thank you. Nonetheless, congratulations. You have broken through. This is a very, very insightful, um, blunt, um, engaging uh, and very informative uh, book. It's got so much going on, but at the heart, it's a memoir. It's about you. And there's so much humanity in this book. And so there are parts that are thrilling and funny and but there are parts that are heartbreaking. I, and I wanted to ask you about that that process, the writing process. What was the fun part to write? What was the funnest part of this book for you to write?
3: um I think for me, honestly, getting to write about my childhood in a way you know I was really committed because so much um ink has been spilled, especially by outsiders about appalachia and 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 queerness and 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 gay folks who might live in Appalachia or live in parts of the south, et cetera um that just misrepresents, maligns, right? Like there's a, there's a, just a lot of misrepresentation about the place where I grew up. And so a lot of what I was doing was kind of setting aside for a time a lot of the complicated feelings I have about the place where I grew up because it was very much marked by homophobia, sexism, um, and trying to recover and remember all of the beautiful things that I did grow up with and the beautiful people who were a part of my childhood, like even if the things that we were doing um, were quite uh, devious and mischievous and all of those things, like I did, you know, grow up with a lot of girls who were um, really fun and precocious. And I grew up with, you know, queer people who were interesting and who taught me a lot. And so I did get to do a lot of memory work around those people. And I think it. sometimes it's easy to forget um, the good parts of our past if we've been through struggles and trauma. Um, and so I, I got to do some of that and it was great.
0: And it comes across, um, there really are some laugh out loud moments in there and and uh, sometimes uh, as a reader, uh, reading about you as a child growing up, some of it's, it's like, oh my goodness, this she's got such a, a backbone you know so strong this little girl who, who's in that environment that you're talking about I grew up in a very similar environment in Louisiana um, and so I there's a parallel in writing about uh, what the way you what you just said writing that stuff if you write if your story is, has has uh, some tragedy or some trauma in it um, of course that comes out, but it's those sweet moments that you um, don't want to let go of, um, that, that you don't want to forget about because when I was writing my book, I did not set out to write the book that I wrote. It just kind of took me in various directions, but I know that I know what you're saying. When you say you wanted to get that, um, those stereotypes, um, uh, explained or debunked in a way that, uh, only a person who's been through it can. And you did, because, um, uh, again, I'm, I'm read, I'm a reader from the South and I'm saying, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Um, and it was fun to see, to, 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 to I enjoyed there were so many parts, like I said, that I enjoyed because of the the sheer humanity of it. These are children and they are doing, like you said, rambunctious things like, wow, that kind of reminds me of <laughs> growing up. Um, and the LGBTQ angle, that queer part, is like uh, for, for, the, for the listeners out there who are not a part of that community, but who are interested in how it works, you give a very good primer on growing up, uh, coming of age in this book about that. It, that's, that's a service you've done beautifully in this book, whether you wanted to or not. <laughs> um, but let me ask you let's go the opposite end of that question. What's the, what was the hardest part to write for you?
3: Um, I think for me, it was very difficult to write about my parents. Um, you know, most memoirs will write feature parents and and you hear a lot of times people say like, I want to write this book, but I'm afraid of of what my family is going to think, or I want to write this book, but I've heard this multiple times since writing this. I want to write this book, but I'm waiting for my parents to pass. Um, a lot of people feel this way. Um, And I think for me, like, I I knew that the work was urgent enough for me that I wasn't going to wait. Um, And I have relationships with my parents and and they are complicated, like all of us are. Um, And I had to do a lot of work to be fair to them. And I think that some of that actually did involve some forgiveness. I think that, you know, for LGBT folks who might... You know, come out like I came out quite early when I was in high school, and have you know this conflict with their parents if their parents don't accept them off the bat. You know, you can kind of calcify that hurt and then move past it into adulthood, and um, and I think I had done that, but writing the book caused me to to have to go back and not only you know, rework some of these parts of myself that were wounded, but also make sure that I was fair to my parents and that I was writing them in an honest way. Um, And, and that did involve forgiveness. Like I had to, to get to a point where I could understand the ways that they responded to me in order that I would be able to, to get it on the page in a fair way. And so Um, that was, that was really difficult. The whole process of figuring out how to talk to my family about the book was difficult. Um, you know, and that's, you know, that's not a craft based thing. I can tell you in terms of writing craft, uh, what was difficult, but like for me, like that, that was kind of it emotionally.
0: I get it. I totally do. I I went through the same thing with my book. Um, and, and I don't remember, uh, I apologize if you mentioned in your book, whether your parents are still living. Mm
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, both of my parents are still living. Um, I have a really close relationship with my mother. My relationship with my father has been a bit strained. And, and I was, you know, concerned that if I came out to him as a sex worker, that he would disown me sort of for the second time. Because if, if you pick up the book and you, you read it, you'll find that when I did come out, um, I didn't talk to my father for a very long time. And I was afraid that was going to happen again when I came out as a sex worker. And so when I did talk to him about the book, I actually asked him not to read it. Um, I told him what it was about. And I said, you know, I don't think that this will be good for our relationship if you read the book. And he agreed to that and said that he was proud of me for writing a book and no matter what it was about. And I think that was, you know, as far as we were going to get. And I think that that's actually a good place to be.
0: Yeah, um, I'm getting. I get. I'm getting uh, goosebumps as you tell me these things. Um, tell us these things. We have a big audience. Um, the uh, the the relationship with your mother, you say, is good and strong today. Um, tell us a little bit more about your relationship with her.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, in the book, um, a lot of the the funniest moments, I think, are with my mom. Um,
0: she the mullet haircut story is hilarious. <laughs>
3: Yeah, maybe I'll tell folks a little bit about that story, because it is the title story of the book um, as well. Um, When I was a when I was an infant, my mother entered me in this pretty baby contest that you you read about in the um, in the book's description. But in the book, the way that comes up is that I'm, you know, 16 years old, I had just had my first queer experience with another girl. I was looking through family photo albums and I was still kind of, you know, bogged down with a lot of shame about my own, you know, budding queerness and, and what that would mean and a lot of internalized homophobia. And um and I was still very much committed to being in the closet and being a cheerleader and and you know doing all of those things. And I was home for the summer, I was like flipping through photo albums of of me as a kid and I found that photo of me Um, and the pretty baby contest and my reaction to it was to look at my mother's haircut and she had this, like my, my mother has, um, you know, Auburn, like red hair and she had this like big red mullet. And my reaction was to say, mom, you have a lesbian haircut. Like, how did you have a lesbian haircut And this, um, you know, sort of like, again, like internalized homophobia, this reaction, um you know, was the first thing that I could think of. And my mom said to me, that wasn't a lesbian haircut. That was a bitch haircut. Like I wanted to be tough. I wanted to be a bitch. I wanted to stand up to your father. And I think that that's very much indicative of of who she is. Um, You know, she was a a shift worker. When I was growing up, she took care of us. And and when I came out, you know, she was, she, it took her a long time to figure out how to be my biggest supporter, but she wanted to be from the very beginning. And I think, um, you know, she's still that person today.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. Um, that's, that, that was one of those laugh out loud moments. And when she says basically to piss off your dad, um, she, <laughs> she had that haircut, um, uh, about the writing process itself. You, you, you just, uh, mentioned that briefly when you talk about this, um, the, what's your process like how do you get it done
3: um so for folks who are listening if if you've been through the process of writing a book or you're thinking about it um the process of writing a nonfiction book is very different from folks who might be writing like a novel um, where they would actually finish the book and then try to publish it um, with nonfiction, you write a proposal so i started out with an idea of the kind of book that i wanted to write um And I actually thought this would be a collection of essays. I thought it would be a collection of essays that was kind of topical about things that I had learned in the dungeon about boundaries or about class and labor and et cetera. Um, But um, I pitched that and I got the feedback that, you know I think this book would actually work much better as a memoir. And I hadn't ever really thought about writing um, a memoir although I did read quite a bit, Quite a bit in the genre. Um, but yeah, I mean, I had written just a couple of chapters. And then when I got the uh, the book contract, I had just a year to write the book. Um, and so that's, that's you know, a pretty quick uh, turnaround. But it happened to be, you know, I think both, both a real uh, curse in lots of ways, but also in terms of time, it was a bit of a blessing that I wrote it um, in 2020. And so I really, there was nothing between there was nothing but me and the page really for that entire year of, of lockdown. Um, and so anytime that I wasn't, you know, stressing about COVID and, and watching the news and, and um, you know, protesting and doing all of the things that we um, had been doing over that year, um, I, was, I was with my computer. And so um, it worked. It worked really quickly. There were a couple of times where I was like fortunate enough to take myself for like three or four days, um, just to like a cabin in the woods where I would have zero distractions. Um, but most of it was just done, um, you know, over the course of that year when I could, um, when I wasn't teaching.
0: That is pretty uh, amazing because uh, I, I, I did the same thing. I, I wrote a second book during that that. D- 2020 and um when a friend, good friend of mine uh from louisiana said how did you possibly write a book i said well we're in a pandemic um otherwise i wouldn't have been able to do it uh, to be honest with you because i wrote the first book uh, under duress <laughs> uh, every morning i would get up uh, so my writing brain happens to work best in the morning um and the evening i can do writing related stuff editing but uh, uh research but i cannot do actual writing in the mornings i mean i can i can only do writing uh, well in the morning, I think. So, um, if you can write all hours and you can write under circumstances, I, I, you know, uh, salute you, anybody who can do that. Um, that's, um, that's pretty remarkable. Um, let's get to the story itself. We, we mentioned lots of parts about it. I, I, um, I have a couple of things I pulled out that are passages from the book that struck me or stopped me for, for one reason, some of them because they're funny, but some of them because, um, they, it, it you, you do really get into the heart of the dynamic of that kind of work. Um, and I'm, I'm going to read a, a passage from that. Let's see um, if I can find it. Oh, about the whore hierarchy, which I found fascinating. I knew nothing about that. And I find that fascinating. Uh, you said um, Catherine was at the, uh, a book signing event, and she was kind of uh, dis- uh, hurt a bit because it was all about her life as a dom to you is the means to an end. You you wanted that you say in the book, you really wanted your 401k. And that was one of the, the 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 things that pushed you into you know, I've got to get this PhD. I want to be a professor. I want to be doing I want to be doing that. Um, but she Catherine was uh, such an influence on you. Um, heavy influence, strong influence on you and you you saw that unfold in a wonderful uh, uh, play, a place it should be a wonderful experience signing books in a bookstore. Um, So, uh, if you could explain a little bit about that horror hierarchy, I I find, I find it fascinating. I think the listeners would too.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll contextualize a little bit about what was happening, um, at that signing so um, in the book I, I was a graduate student at this time and my partner was the person who um, introduced me to professional BDSM as a way to just make ends meet because my you know a lot of people know if you're academics listening to this that TA stipend doesn't really get you there um, and so she introduced me to sex work and she was a full-time sex worker um, It was her career, whereas for me, it was you know just that way to make ends meet. It was something I was doing for the time being, and that I was going to move past when I finally got out of school and became a professor. I thought. Um, And so we went to a talk together, and um, the talk was you know on it was in the realm of queer theory. And so Catherine was very interested in it. Um, And then at the end of the talk, she goes up to get her book signed by the person who was reading, and they asked her what she did for a living and she said dominatrix and they said well why are you here with the implication that you know like a dominatrix doesn't have really a place um in this in this space of intellectualism and in that moment this moment is is honestly i mean like another one of those really hard things for me to write about because i'm ashamed that i thought this especially now where i am in my life now but at the time i thought to myself you know, that will never be me because like I'm going on to other things and she is just a sex worker. And, you know, like that, there's a lot, I mean, I'm ashamed of of feeling that way. You know, I had to write about it to honestly grapple with this idea of the four hierarchy that you're talking about. But I think, um, you know, even within the realm of sex work, because we live in a culture that is, that is so mired in, Sex negativity and um, and shame that you know if you're if you're just doing it for a time being and you have other ambitions well then you're higher you know you're higher above on this hierarchy than someone who's doing it as their career um, and I see this totally differently now I mean now I think there you know there are so many creative things that you can do as a sex worker as your career and there are lots of you know, degrading things and, uh, you know, lots of kinds of labor that that I think you have to do in academia um, that is often unpaid that you know, to me feels, feels much more degrading than a lot of the things I did as a sex worker. And so right on. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> I love
0: that. I love that. Go ahead. Keep, keep going. Yeah. Sorry.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's just, and so like that hierarchy of just like, you know, and I think that we see this in other places in our culture too, if you really think about it, like the idea of like, oh, I'm just like stripping while I'm going through school or like, yeah, I'm like doing this, but I'm doing it because I'm paying for college. Right. Like if you have some other ambition, then sex work is justifiable. Whereas if it's your career, it seems, um, uh, like, you know, th- that, that you're not, you're not worthy or you can't do something else, which is just entirely untrue. Um, and then I talk about it in, in other, in other places in the book too. Um, there's, you know, this sort of like hierarchy that sometimes it has, you know, some somewhat to do with, with criminality. Like there are some forms of sex work that are much more overtly criminalized than others. Um, I was working as a professional dominatrix, uh, professional dominants don't typically have, um, you know, like sex, like a, what you would think of traditionally as like heterosexual sex, they don't have sex with their clients. And so the sort of proximity to criminality, also proximity to, um, you know, a client's body and intimacy with the client's body, like all of that is kind of used to justify, again, this hierarchy where um, a dominatrix can feel like, okay, I'm, I'm a sex worker, but I'm not the kind of sex worker who has act- who has sex with her clients, like an escort might. Um, and so, you know, like all of that becomes part of the book, as well, because I do, um, you know, I did very much want to paint a nuanced portrait of like these different forms of sex work and what was going on.
2: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
0: Yeah, um, that's a fascinating uh, uh, insiders. Look, um, because you you got to compare, you're you're doing it in real life, comparing the the two worlds and how similar they actually are, the academia versus the sex work world. And um, you also do a lot about the dynamic, the vast differences between the various expressions of gender, um, which, um, really, uh, come that there, there, there's some, uh, for, as a male, I, I'm, I, there was a passage that I, that struck me and made me stop and read it again a few times. I'm gonna read it uh, aloud here if I can find it. Um, uh, oh, oh, I here it is. uh, there's a character in your book, Romeo. Um, and he had never encountered a woman looking for anonymous sex online before. Um, men can be fearless in their desires in ways that women simply cannot. And I, I love that. Um, they can wander through labyrinthine hallways and sleazy leather bars. They can push themselves through holes in bathroom stalls in the basements of college administration buildings. I've been there. I've seen that. Um, they they can wait on their knees. They can fuck strangers from the internet and no one tells them to meet first in public and make sure a friend knows where they're going. That gave me chills to be frank, Um, that how we and the male gender take for granted the ease that we can have sex. A lot of straight men, I've heard this as a comedian recently say that, you know, the gay men, they, you know, they they can just go ahead and do exactly what we straight people can't do. They go right to it and they get right at it. They have no, they don't blink uh, basically. So um, if you could explain, uh, expand about that, about how different it is to be based on your gender, how different it is to be in the world.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, I think another famous podcaster, Dan Savage, talks about that difference between, um, you know, gay men and straight men, where he says straight men would have just as much sex as gay men, but women won't let them. Um, And I think, you know, like, there are so many different reasons for that. I mean, I do think, you know, a lot of it's socialization, like women, don't you know learn to embrace their sexuality from a young age and if they do they're punished for it um and that was like certainly a a lot of lessons that I learned about sexuality and desire when I was a teenager and adolescent and all of that is is very much in the book as well um and I think you know if you move out into the world and and past that and you you know embrace a kind of like feminism or sex positivity and you're comfortable with your desires, um, and you want to move in the world and and in a much more, um, sexually open way as, as I, I've been able to do. Um, if you're a straight woman, you're still faced with the possibility of violence, the potential of violence and a lot of what's in the book, even though it is, um, in the realm of, of, um, sex work and not just sex and desire. Um, I do talk about, you know, the idea of being alone with, with a straight man is is terrifying for a lot of women and and we really have to think about um violence that could be done to us in ways that um men are certainly subject to and I think that there are, there are like increasingly more um like pop cultural texts out there that really deal with the ways that men can find themselves in very dangerous situations. Um, like gay men, I'm thinking of like Michaela Cole's, um, I may destroy you, which is a show that I, I, I love that show, but it really, you know, shows that like gay men can be put in situations that are, that are violent as well. But I do think that that threat of violence is particularly acute for women. And, um, in the encounter in the book with Romeo, um, that was the the first time where I wanted to seek out, um, you know, like anonymous sex, um, for myself, it was something that, you know, I had provided in a way for clients for, for many years. And I got to the point where I was thinking like, why well, I provide this for everybody. Like, what would it be like if I tried to seek it out for myself? And I think, um, you know, the lesson that I learned there uh, that I try to articulate in the book is that um, I'm just never going to be able to access that in the same way that these men are, because I'm, I'm just caught up in this matrix of fear, um, whether it might be fear for my own safety or, you know, like thinking about, like, could I actually make a man afraid of me? Um, is that actually even possible I've done all this work as a dominatrix, but it's all, you know, being sanctioned and and ordered in some ways um, by the men who are paying me because it is a service job, and so, um, you know, like that that became a really complicated question for me. Um, but I do think that throughout the book, I really try to engage with the ways that that men and boys um, frighten girls um, and and women and. And that can be physical. It could also be reputational. Um, I dealt with a lot of that as well.
0: Um, That was a particularly strong, uh, powerful um, uh, piece uh, about you and Romeo. And what I thought was, uh, it was. it, it comes off that your explanation about the the the, the differences the fear or factor and those things but also you were doing it in a very clinical almost way you were meeting up with him you wanted to find i think your quote was something like i wasn't looking for pleasure i was looking to just to have sex with a man which is not necessarily the same thing you know which i found i, I laughed out loud at that because i like, you know with all that build up i was like yeah that's you know just I, I i can get it i can see it sometimes you know in all in all of the dynamics no matter what, it's uh, gender or, or, you know, we we are um, uh, privileged. We all have privileges, but they're so different depending on where you are and what color your skin is and what your gender is and all that. Um, but uh, it seems the straight white male has the most privileges in this world. I'm just going to throw that out there. It's pr- people will probably yell at me, but I think they do actually have more privileges than they know. And the rest of us have to work around that. Um, have to think about it. They don't think about it. Uh, and I found that coming through I mean you you're you're not a man-hater um, you know you're not you know an evil man-hating lesbian dominatrix. <laughs> <laughs> as much as
3: i tried to pretend because that's definitely what what my clients were looking for yeah,
0: yeah um, so a, a beautiful job though weaving that all together you have a lot of things going on that um, you could read this book for and come away with I, I loved your childhood stories I loved I, I love the fact that you brought in um, th- those pieces of uh, discovery um, uh, one of the things I got uh, criticized about my book is I didn't do enough of that I didn't tell enough about the juicy bits of being a little gay boy I'm um, saying so, well for me there aren't that many you know <laughs> So, um, but um, so no beautiful job um, there, there's some um, we're, I have to watch the time on our show um, there's some uh, a little bit of business I want to ask you to do for our listeners and that is um, um, if, if you could have, if you could shape the world the way you'd like it, the way you think ideally it could be, what would that be? What's your, what would, if you have a vision for how things really should be, what would that be? That's a big question I know, but um, I'm going to see, see what you say about that.
3: I mean, I think in, well, there are lots of things that I would do to change um, <laughs> to change the world and white supremacy. Um, right. But I, I think in relationship to this book, um, I do think that decriminalizing sex work um, across this country is something that we absolutely need to happen. Um, We talk a lot about, you know, decreasing stigma for folks so that, you know, if you've done sex work and you don't want to do sex work anymore, you can move into other industries. Um, We're still not at that place where that can happen. Um, People often, I mean, recently, you know, there are just stories in the media about, Um, you know, people who had done, um, who had been porn performers, and then, you know, want to go to nursing school, and then are shamed out of their nursing programs by like, uh, professors who don't think that you can do porn and then do other kinds of work. Um, You know, like, that's, that's a stigma problem. And I think that, you know, we need to understand sex work as work and destigmatize it. But I think before we can even do that, we really have to decriminalize sex work. Um, certainly folks who um, you know, need access to services, who might've experienced violence on the job, stalking on the job, like you know, we can't interface with the police. And even if you don't wanna be interfacing with the police at all, um, because you're a person of color or you're marginalized in some ways that the cops don't feel safe to call, Um, you know, people stay in the closet. They don't, they don't talk to their friends and families. They don't, you know, have safety calls because of stigma and because of of criminalization. And so I think first and foremost, that's, you know, what needs to change. And I do hope that if my book does anything, um, in the world, I do hope that it, it, you know, provides a new perspective on sex work, um, on the things that make sex work dangerous and, and de some of, of what folks deal with, um, and can change minds in that way.
0: Um, well, well, um, kudos to you because as I was reading it, I'm going, this book will change minds to, to, to be honest with you, not to just to flatter you. I was like, damn, this book is, if this book gets out where, where it belongs, it's going to, it's going to do some, some real good. Um, and I think it actually will. Um, the, um, the second piece of that that uh, question for you is um, not a lot of young people probably listen to the podcast because it's more of an academic podcast. So for the people around young people who are coming up in rough circumstances, in places where there's bigotry and... Parental abuse and uh, just a lot of ugliness in the world. And it's not just the South. Um, what do you? Uh, what would you say to an adult or a big sister or a big brother of a child who is obviously going through something like what you and I have both been through?
3: I mean, I think you know, creating safe spaces for for kids to just share who they are. And I mean, you know, we're living through a time in which. Um, you know, adults in some places are making it absolutely impossible for children to tell to tell us what they're going through. Right. Or, um, you know, making it impossible for adults to show like, hey, I'm an open, safe person to talk to. Right. With like, don't say gay bills and, you know, things that are happening or even, you know, like the the, you know, stigma that Parents of trans kids are facing especially if they're trying to be good parents and, and get those kids um, the care that they deserve I mean we're just we're living through a time that is really scary I think for um, for queer kids and for adults who want to support queer kids um, but I would say yeah as much as you can like make space to listen um, and don't write off uh, you know like the things that kids are going through as, as you know, just like overly dramatic or just a phase or whatever it is, like to actually take people seriously um, in their feelings, I think is is first and foremost really important. And I would say, you know, beyond kids, like if there are academics like listening to this podcast, um, I would say know that you have students who are sex workers. You absolutely do have students who are sex workers who might be engaged in cam work or OnlyFans work or even. Um, who are doing, um, you know, in-person service sex work. Um, you know, I've, I've had those students um, and they feel oftentimes like they can't write about their experiences, that they would be um, invalidated or um, looked down upon in the classroom. And I would just encourage folks to, again, you know, make sure that people know that you're an ally and that they're safe talking with you and safe exploring like the full experience of themselves in classrooms.
0: I love that you've added that to that question, because that was a kind of my next question, but you've answered it. So yes, exactly what needs to happen in academia. So you did a beautiful job. Thank you. <laughs> of bringing that uh, all to a close. Uh, we, we are um, at the end of our, 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 our talk here today um, with Dr. Chris Belcher. Um, it's a wonderful book. It's called Pretty Baby a memoir. It's published by Simon and Schuster, a division of Simon and Schuster. Um, and um, I'd just like to thank you so much for, for doing this today, Chris. It's been a joy to talk with you. Um, I've done a lot of these and I really enjoyed this one. It's, 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 this book is fun. This book is heartbreaking. This book is informative. It's, it's, I hope it does what we talked about just earlier. It, I hope it breaks some ground where it needs to be broken because you're absolutely right on. Things need to change. I think we're getting there slow. In my 150 years on this earth, <laughs> I've seen a lot, and I am trying to be optimistic. We've had some setbacks in the last couple of years, few years, um, politically. Um, but I, I I was so optimistic at a point before all these things started happening really aggressively re- in recent years that we were going to get there. Um, so I want to I be optimistic again. Um, if you have an idea for a podcast episode – O- on a new book about the LGBTQ experience, please let us know. Email us at Queer Voices of the South. We have to change that. We've dropped of the South. We're trying to be more inclusive. Uh, Queer Voices of the South at gmail.com. Send us an idea for uh, a- an episode. Thanks again, Chris. Um, any last words before we leave?
3: Well, just thank you so much for having me. Um, This has been a really lovely conversation. And, you know, I'm all obviously all for inclusion, but it's also really nice to just talk to another Southerner. I know that, like, Appalachia, the South, I mean, the boundaries get blurry, but, you know, oftentimes I definitely... Um, identify as someone who's from the South, especially being out here in California where lots of people don't even know that West Virginia is a state of its own. Um, <laughs> it's <laughs> part yeah. of Virginia, I'm talking about the Western part. Um, but yeah, it's been really nice to have this conversation. So thank you so much for having
0: me. Well, it's been a thrill. Thank you so much. Um, goodbye, everybody.